0: Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and reality. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science
1: journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who just thinks about science all the time. Just constantly. Randomly, in the shower, you know, when I'm asleep. (laughs) This joke never gets old. I feel like I, I just
0: want to think about you thinking about science in all the places. So today's episode is about sex sex yay. in yeah exactly sex in science fiction sex in fantasy and basically we want to talk about a couple of different things one is sort of common tropes about where sex is going in the future but we also want to talk about how sex is imagined in fantasy and science fiction and how it sheds light on how we feel about sex in real life We also are going to have a special guest today, Lux Alptrom, who just released a book called Faking It, which is about the lies that women tell about sex. She's also a big sci-fi fan. So we're going to talk a little bit about real life lies, if that makes sense, and science fictional stories about sex. So here we go.
1: So, Emily, I'm curious, what is sex going to be like in the future, according to science fiction?
0: Oh, not according to me. (laughs) Or according to you. Either way. (laughs) Well, according to me, I mean, I think eventually, you know, we're going to be squid people having, like, tentacle sex on Titan. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're not really talking about me and my plans and goals One of the things that was interesting as I was kind of looking around at science fiction and also fantasy about the future of sex is that two big themes kind of emerge. I mean, there's a ton of stuff we could talk about here, but... One of the themes is this idea that we're going to be in a future where no one really has sex anymore uh, or at least not the way we think of it. It'll be kind of a sexless future. Common examples of that are things like the movie Sleeper, which was a Woody Allen movie that was hugely popular, it came out in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, this was during the period of Woody Allen's life when he was doing comedies, and so it's a future comedy where instead of having sex, people go into this sort of booth called the orgasmatron. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of scenes of people sort of sitting around talking about the orgasmatron and Mm -hmm. how great it is. But it's also supposed to be sexless sex. And then there's also the classic film, <laughs> Demolition Man, where something really similar happens. I mean, maybe it's it's not as you know well known of a film, but Sylvester Stallone wakes up in the future. He's been frozen for X number of years and he's with uh, Sandra Bullock. And we have a clip from that where Sandra Bullock says to him, hey, do you want to have sex with me? And he's like, yeah. And then what she does is put like a virtual reality headset on him and on her, and he realizes suddenly that, very suddenly, that what she's expecting is that sex will be sexless. It'll be just kind of a brain sex kind of thing. But I I thought you wanted to make love. Is that what you call this? First sex has been proven to produce higher orders of alpha
2: waves during digitized transference of sexual energies.
0: All right, Opsley, what do you say we just do it the old-fashioned way?
1: Oh, disgusting. You mean...
0: Fluid transfer. I mean, Bonnie, the, the Wild Mambo, the, the Hunka Chunka.
1: I never get tired of hearing Sylvester Stallone say the words Hunka Chunka, which is just <laughs> the least sexy thing I can possibly imagine. But it's interesting. It's sort of a fantasy of being separated from the kind of messy, clumsy kind of weirdness of actual sex, but it's also kind of this dark you know, terrible future in which we lose human connection or something. Actually, full confession, when I was in high school, I wrote it like when I was fifteen or sixteen, I wrote a short story about a future in which nobody has sex and instead they just eat something called orgasm candy. Mm. And you know, it's was it
0: sort of like jelly babies. You could just say- <laughs>
1: It was not like Would jelly you like a jelly baby. I mean, it was, an orgasm candy. <laughs> it was something where basically you, you eat this candy and you have an orgasm and then you go on with your day or whatever. And like I hadn't fully thought it through, but it was about <laughs> basically a world where people had lost connection with each other. And I said it to the high school literary magazine and they did not publish it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that oftentimes we see the sexless future in a false utopia, kind of, where it's, which is, of course, Sleeper is very much, the Woody mm-hmm. Allen film is very much a, a, a false utopia. At the same time, there's things like the classic novel 1984, where one of the characters is in the anti-sex league, mm-hmm. where it has a very different cast. It's a very dystopian story, but it's still about that same idea that It is a false utopia in 1984. You know, they're supposed to be believing in the revolution and believing that Ingsoc is like fucking great. Ingsoc being the the shortened term of English socialism. And so they're doing things like abstaining from sex because, again, like you said, it's like getting rid of that kind of messy biological Mm -hmm. part of
1: humanity THX 1138 to Yes. I think it's a common hallmark of dystopias that in some way or another there's no sex or that, you know, sexuality is kind of constrained.
0: It is about losing connection because one of the things in that Demolition Man clip is he says, you know, why don't we just touch? You know, there's this idea. I mean, it's it's obviously couched as being funny, but it's also, you know, what if we lose that human touch, like what else do we lose?
1: Yeah, and I think with Demolition Man and other stuff, That's more recent, you have to kind of draw the line between pre-HIV and post-HIV. Oh, interesting. Because I think that post-HIV, we have a rational fear that you're going to, you know, get this disease that in, I guess, 1989 was still a death sentence um, for people. And, you know, there's that one naked gun movie where they put on full body condoms Mm -hmm. that they're like fully covered from head to foot in latex before they can touch each other. And I think that's part of what goes into A post-HIV vision of like a sexless future is that we are going to be safer that way but that that's our fear that HIV is going to make sex impossible or that we're going to kind of be unable to touch each other anymore. That's
0: so interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But there is kind of a rash of movies in the early 90s with VR sex. Mm-hmm. And it's it's funny because, of course, also virtual reality was becoming a big meme at that time. And people really thought it was like right around the corner. And I blame Jaron Lanier like for all of it. He's uh-huh. like totally responsible. So it's his fault that we have the movie Lawnmower Man. But, um, <laughs> but also Lawnmower Man has a VR sex in it. And of course Demolition Man is VR sex. And so it's that fear of HIV but also fear of this kind of technology. Technology. So, the flip side of this, of course, is that there's the future of promiscuous sex, but no romance, mm-hmm. the romanceless future, which you see a lot in science fiction, like. I think we were already talking about Logan's Run. It goes back to Brave New World, mm-hmm. where, you know, which was a novel that came out in the early 20th century where everybody is just having sex with anyone they want, but, of course, they don't reproduce. All reproduction is done by the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, everyone's genetically engineered and then socially conditioned to enjoy their position in the world. And so the price of promiscuity is, again, no human connection.
1: right. And it, it is very much the flip side because it is—it's sex without intimacy and without any real communication, other than just you know making sure that you're each other's type. It's sort of like. Grinder before Grinder or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Oh my God. Or Craigslist or whatever. Isn't
0: Wait, and in, in the Logan's Run movie, I feel like they actually have like a physical version of Grinder, right? Because he's flipping through mm-hmm. people and they like appear in his fireplace or something. It's,
1: it's Grinder with like teleportation. Yes. It's like the only way Grinder could be easier oh is my. if you could just teleport <laughs> to someone's home or whatever.
0: Although I feel like it's a lot meaner <laughs> to just
1: like have <laughs> someone like physically swipe you away.
0: <laughs> like, now I'm in another fireplace place. <laughs> oh, that's right. Because he's I mean, swiping through women until he finds one that he wants. Right. So, and apparently she has no say over it. Like, it's once he chooses her, she's like, oh, great. I'm up for anything. Whatever. I need to
1: rewatch that movie. It I is. Don't know. It
0: is like, it's a masterpiece of, <laughs> of its time. Although I should say, I mean, I say that jokingly, but it very much reflects a lot of anxieties from the early '70s in a in a way that's pretty unique. There's a reason why we remember it really well culturally.
1: Unlike with like the sexless future, I think the romanceless future has some wish fulfillment because it's. It sort of goes along with the sexual revolution and even before the sexual revolution, all of these progressives who advocated free love. Mm-hmm. You know, is it basically just a thing that we wish could be true, but that we sort of know can't be true?
0: Yeah, I think both the sexless future and the romanceless future are kind of testimony to how unimaginative we are when it comes to thinking about the future of sex. Like the idea that all of society would suddenly reject romance or suddenly reject sex and also the idea that that would always mean the same thing—that if we reject sex, that automatically means we're rejecting intimacy—or that somehow that virtual reality sex, like, wouldn't be just as good for some people as as embodied sex. You know, I, I think it's it's funny that we never see or we rarely see a future where everybody's doing different weird Mm -hmm. stuff which is how it is in reality like there's no (laughs) one way that we're all having sex fyi for those of you listening in
1: it's not a coincidence that these are all super heteronormative visions of the future in which like it's not just men and women but it's a very particular type of men and women who are like it's mostly white people who look a certain way who are having a certain kind of interaction and it's not a future with a lot of diversity of sexuality in general.
0: Yeah, or diversity of ethnicities or races, as you point right. out. Yeah, it's yeah. really true. Or it's like there'll be one black woman in the background as like an exotic flavor or something like <laughs> oh as Logan God. is, is you know, swiping through <laughs> women. It's like, oh, but you can have black flavor. It's <laughs> not it's not well handled in any way. Uh-huh. And then I think there's the other kind of cheap or like shorthand way that we talk about the future of sex being different is when you see movies like Hell Comes to Frogtown, a Mm -hmm. classic with Rowdy Roddy Piper, where the gender roles are kind of switched. It's a post-apocalyptic world. Very few people are fertile anymore. And men who have sperm that work become kind of just sperm donors. Mm -hmm. And he's captured by this group of tough women who just want to use him for his sperm which echoes a cult movie from the early 70s with Don Johnson called A Boy and His Dog which I highly recommend because it is a psychotic movie. It is so worth seeing again. Post-apocalyptic world, we need sperm. Don Johnson is there and so he's kidnapped <laughs> by a, a weird group of underground clown people led by Jason Robards who attach him to a machine to extract sperm and that's all he is. So Again, it's both sexless and romanceless, and of course, white men have no power. So, how terrifying and weird is that? Yeah. I think that's the idea.
1: And we have a clip from *Hell Comes to Frog Down, don't we?
0: We do. I love this scene. So, this is where Rowdy Roddy Piper is being told that he uh, is going to have to just donate sperm, and he's he's just feeling kind of he's not feeling it. You can start now. What are you talking about?
1: The girl. I've injected her with Ovidol to facilitate procreation. That's why you're here, remember? Just like that? Yeah, she's ovulating and you've got a high count. Let's go. Oh, come on. I can't work like this. Come on, Hellman. It's late and I'm tired. She's never ever brushed her teeth. What is the matter? She's not my type, huh? Your type? Yeah. You have preferences. Well, yeah, you know, if I kind of know her and there's a little chemistry there and you know, a little atmosphere'd be nice oh, next you're gonna be telling me you have to be in love first well, maybe you ought to try making love to
2: a complete stranger in the middle of a hostile mutant territory see how you like it
1: he needs to be in the mood you know I love that clip and you know I feel like he came to like Chew bubblegum and shoot sperm, and he's all out of sperm.
0: He has sperm. He needs to be in the mood.
1: Like right. ha, you know, how He needs some... to chew some bubblegum so he can yeah. be in the mood. <laughs>
0: to... <laughs> I love that it, it's also like this moment of like male sensitivity kind of I like know. in this extreme situation. Finally, men are able to understand the idea that you can't just perform on demand.
1: So you talking about Logan's run and his swiping and everything, maybe think of like how to some extent we're viewing sex as a commodity in these things with men as the consumers. And part of what's so alarming in that Rowdy Roddy Piper scene is that he's no longer the consumer. He's the producer. Mm -hmm. He's no longer, you know, the one in the position to kind of swipe and decide Mm -hmm. and, you know, to shop for the kind of sex he wants. And it's interesting because, of course, up until pretty recently, science fiction was selling sex. Science fiction paperback covers would have, like, scantily clad women on the cover. They would have, like, nubile women who were there to make the hero more manly or whatever. Most classic cheesy science fiction movies have, like, an element of sexual exploitation to them with, like, you know, hot ladies who, again, are scantily clad.
0: Mm -hmm. Hot green ladies. Hot green ladies. You look at Weird Tales, the sort of classic Pulp Fiction magazine from the 1920s, and there are tons where it's oh my just, God, they're basically naked women with mm-hmm. monsters on every cover.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're pretty insane, some of those some of those images. And so my question for you is, does this commodification of sex within science fiction constrain how science fiction is able to imagine the future of sex?
0: Wow, that is a super good question. Um, and I think we're definitely gonna talk about that a little bit with Lux when she joins us. but I think, that science fiction is working within the constraints of its own time as many people have said you know science fiction is a reflection of the present and we actually are not able to predict the future right <laughs> that part of the fantasy of the future that we get the sex future comes straight out of the people writing it and producing it and selling it being unable to imagine alternatives to you know, hot babes and white, mm-hmm. white men, you know,
1: strong white men, of course. So sex is a commodity, basically. It's, we're imagining it could be a better commodity or it could be become so commodified that it's stripped of – you know, it's humanity.
0: I mean, it's funny because both the sexless future and the romanceless future are in some ways a critique of sex as commodity, right? Especially the sexless future, because these are both the examples that we were talking about a lot in Demolition Man and with the Orgasmatron and Sleeper, those are commodities. Like they're replacing sex with technology. You know, as opposed to like in 1984, where they're replacing it with ideology, which mm-hmm. is a whole other <laughs> kettle of fish, um, or worms, or whatever mm, alien ideology, whatever <laughs> whatever phallic alien object is in your is in your barrel. So I think that it's that fun way in which you know science fiction stories can register a protest against something that they're also kind of embracing. So it's like we're getting to have the titillation, but we also kind of hear this faint criticism of you know well maybe we shouldn't be just buying objects maybe we should be touching each other and mm-hmm. like being intimate and you know I'm never against a movie or a story that says intimacy is awesome because yay intimacy mm-hmm. same yeah I think that both are going on but I do have one final question here which is how does Zardoz fit into all of this
1: such a good question <laughs> and we have a clip from the Zardoz
0: yeah my favorite clip the clip that has become a meme and we'll leave you listeners to think about what it all means.
1: The gun is good.
2: The gun
0: is good. The penis is evil.
1: The penis shoots seeds and makes new life to poison the earth with a plague of men.
0: And now, I want to talk to you, Charlie, about alien sex, monster sex, my favorite kinds of sex, basically. Everybody
1: loves it. Everybody yeah. loves
0: it. And, you know, we just had a movie the shape of water mm-hmm. that's essentially like a giant alien sex love story like sweep the academy awards or at least get the academy awards really excited what does it mean when we tell stories about humans having sex with creatures that are not not just green women but like really physically different like fish guys or <laughs> tentacle people? Like, what are those stories trying to – what itch are they scratching?
1: I mean, I think it's partly just the desire for something new and different and, like, part of – it's a true thing about human beings that when we encounter something new and different for ourselves, we're either going to try to eat it or we're going to try to have sex with it. <laughs> or sell it. <laughs> or sell it. <laughs> um, and that that is a thing about human beings and that it's also true, like, what we were saying before about, like, the sexless future being kind of, like, less – messy and weird, sex between humans is already, in some ways, kind of alien and bizarre. And it often, you know, especially if you're having sex with someone whose body is different from yours, there's already a sense that, you know, you're encountering something kind of foreign and weird. And so talking about alien sex can be a way to kind of heighten that and kind of play that up. But it's also just a fun fantasy. And it's like, fun to kind of imagine what you could find sexy in other spheres. And like, Saying the word spheres, of course, makes me think of, like, the classic novel The Sex Sphere by Rudy Rucker, which (laughs) is, like, perhaps the ultimate story of, like, weird sex with, like, another creature. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: (laughs) This novel made a big impression on me when I was in the seventh grade uh, because it's about a being from another dimension that manifests itself on Earth by appearing as spheres, perfect spheres, that have... Lips, breasts, and vaginas. Um, there are some that also have penises, by the way, later in the book we learn about this, but mostly it's it's manifesting itself with, you know, traditionally female <laughs> genitals, <laughs> genitals that are often identified as female, but not necessarily. And people just start humping them. It kind of escalates from there. But I always love the idea of sort of like vengeful disembodied vaginas from another dimension. It just made me really happy. And it is sort of an exploration of like, A little bit of what we were talking about earlier, like how sex gets commodified, because a lot of the book is a pretty open protest against pornography and how pornography reduces women to these like blobs of Mm -hmm. of genital. And the characters kind of have to learn to resist it. I mean, it's partly because the aliens are doing mind control. They also are having to like learn to resist this like reduced thing that is not really a woman at all. But I wanted to get back to thinking about what we we were talking about earlier about diversity and how a lot of these stories kind of shut down diversity, sexual diversity, racial diversity, like name your diversity, it's been shut down. We mm-hmm. um, it's closed. But I wonder if if you think. That in like say a movie like Shape of Water or stories that are about sex with aliens, things like Galaxy Quest, mm-hmm. which has like a kind of delightful love story between a tentacled person, a tentacled mm-hmm. individual, and a human, the human captain, um, or not—he's not the captain, but he's—he's he's he's one the of the engineer. He's the engineer. He's a, which is I guess sexier than the captain. <laughs> so, captain is like played by that cowboy guy from Toy Story. So mm-hmm. screw that guy. Anyway, so is this like a way of thinking about diversity in sex, do you
1: think? It's definitely a way of imagining sort of queerer sex because often the sex is not, for example, in in Galaxy Quest, if there's a human male having sex with a woman who has tentacles, she's... What's she doing with those tentacles? I know. And actually, here's a really brief quip. Whoa. Great friend. Hey, Fred. Um... Oh, that's not right. No. And that was Sam Rockwell saying, that's not right. Which, you know, screw your judgment, Sam Rockwell. Right? I think that, so he's you know, watching
0: them. He's watching them have, like, tentacle sex, basically. Yeah. And this, I should just add, this scene has become a huge meme. Like, that picture of Sam Rockwell and then, like, the heading, like, it's, this is not right, no. Yeah. Um, so this is, there's always, like, somebody in there who's, like, going to judge.
1: Yeah. Fucking Sam Rockwell. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, but... He's just a You clone. know, I mean, often... Sex between an alien and a human or sex between two different types of aliens can be just sexier because it's fun and playful and weird and it kind of destabilizes and deconstructs sexuality. And, like, you know, for example, when Kira and Odo finally get together and Odo kind of turns himself into a mist and, like, it's just this beautiful moment of, like, she's kind of bathing in, like, this beautiful glittery mist and it's just so nice. And I think that it is a way to kind of Take sexuality and kind of reimagine it. Octavia Butler in the Xenogenesis trilogy kind of does that where she takes humans and kind of makes us part of a sexual relationship with aliens, like two humans and one alien. It's much less kind of simple and kind of gets rid of this kind of division between who's penetrating and who's being penetrated, destabilizes the gendered aspects of sex, but also the power dynamics that can come up. And it's just a way of thinking about sex that's maybe queerer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to mention a novel that I had just been thinking about called *Condom Knot*, by the Cuban author Yas, which is about basically we start meeting aliens. We go out into space, we start meeting aliens, and every time we meet an alien, the first thing that, that we have to do is have sex with them because that's how you establish communication with aliens. That's the only way that aliens will understand us. Oh, makes sense. And so there's a special, like, group of astronauts who are trained to have sex with any aliens that they find. And, you know, I feel like... I would not volunteer to go to Mars (laughs) to
0: die, but I would volunteer for that mission. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's, you know, the classic, like you mentioned green women, the classic thing is like Captain Kirk going out into space and basically (sighs) just having sex with every alien he meets and... Yeah, except
0: they always look like hot ladies. I know they're not really. He's not having sex with tentacle ladies. He's not
1: just like randomly hooking up with like the Ferengi or the Telosians. right? Yeah, or a a mist. He would be
0: like so upset about a mist. You know, a misty encounter, a a sex myth. I don't know what what Odo is there, but yeah,
1: (laughs) it's really true. James Kirk is kind of narrow minded in his own way, but it is this fantasy of sort of exploring and like getting to having a kind of sexual conquest, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. that is like brave new worlds and going where no man has gone, coming where no man has come before. I guess.
0: Yeah, Um, it is very much about conquest. Whereas I think. The example of Odo, or even the example in Shape of Water, is much more about, like you said, sort of reimagining those dynamics and imagining sex that isn't playing into that sort of male-female, top-bottom, like, mm-hmm. binary. It's sort of like, oh, well, what if we weren't any of those things? Like, but we still had nice spots that like to be touched and like, what are those spots? I don't know what they are. We have to find them.
1: I just wanted to briefly like say in fantasy stories, I feel like sex with the quote unquote other like is is a little different than in science fiction stories because, you know, often it's a creature that's older or more powerful or has magic. For example, having sex with vampires. Vampires are often more mysterious and they're dangerous and deadly, but they're also more glamorous because they've been around and in the middle of like hooking up with a vampire, they can start talking about back in 1879 when I was like boning Napoleon or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Was Napoleon even alive in 1879? I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well whatever. You know, but
0: you're boning him. It's fine. I mean you're maybe you're boning his Part. resurrected his sex sphere. Just <laughs> like a Napoleonic <laughs> penis like mounted on a sphere. But I think that also I, I always think about, like, Twilight and True Blood when I think about vampire sex, where it's like basically having sex with a vampire will break you. Mm-hmm. Like, it will just destroy your body. Mm-hmm. And it is very different from, like, sex with an alien. It's much more about conquest. The other thing I wanted to say uh, to wrap up here is to think back to this idea of sex as intimacy. Because as much as we, we know that it isn't always true that sex is intimate, we also use it as shorthand – Uh, for intimacy all the time. And I think that that's a big part of these stories about aliens that we meet and have sex with, not in a Captain Kirk way, but in much more of a Kira and Odo way, where it's a way of establishing a connection with a creature or a civilization that's totally different from us. But we still have that kind of loving connection hopefully loving um tentacle connection
1: yeah it's a way of understanding each other and you know communicating and kind of being open you know sometimes literally to something that's really different for yourself (laughs) and you know it's part of why it's such an amazing fantasy in both science fiction and fantasy is because it is this fantasy of getting to be connected to something other and being able to do that without being destroyed hopefully
0: yeah, being able to do that and survive and maybe become better, you know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe even merge with it or them or whatever, yeah. whatever
1: pronoun they use. Come out changed on the other end. Yeah. You know. OK, <laughs> let's talk to Lux.
0: So we're here. We're super excited to have Yay. Lux Alptrom. She's the first person who's called into the studio from so New exciting. York. So You know, this is very high tech. And Lux has just published a fantastic book called Faking It, The Lies That Women Tell About Sex and the Truths They Reveal. And not only is Lux an expert on sex and culture, but she's also a science fiction fan. So we're going to talk to her about some of these lies that we tell in real life and how they kind of work their way into science fiction. So thanks for joining us, Lux.
2: Yeah, I'm so excited to be here as a huge fan of the show
0: and all things (laughs) sci-fi. So I wanted to start just by talking a little bit about your book. I mean, what's interesting about the topic is this is a book about how Women are actually doing storytelling in their everyday lives to kind of explain their sexuality without telling the truth about it. And I wonder if you could talk about a couple of the more pernicious lies that we hear over and over about female sexuality.
2: So it's funny because when I first started thinking about lying and female sexuality, I was really convinced that this was all just some patriarchal plot and that women were really actually honest and we were being set up. By this fiction that we were liars. And as I started investigating, it became really clear that it was more complicated than that. And that oftentimes women are lying, but we're lying because we're kind of in this trap where society says, this is how women are, this is how female sexuality is. And if you don't fit that and you try to be honest, you are either punished or nobody believes you. So you kind of lie and fudge things to just get by without anybody noticing you. And that can range from innocent things like women faking orgasm because we're all convinced that if you don't have an orgasm the sex was bad, which can lead or to or you're
0: doing whole, it wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, or you're doing it wrong, which can lead to just a lot of annoying conversation or just frustration. So sometimes just faking an orgasm is just an easy way to end something to like more more pernicious And scary ones like this idea that women who are out in public are always craving male attention. So you have this, I have a boyfriend lie, because if you're out at a bar or walking down the street, there's this assumption that you are courting male attention and sexual attention. And that the only way that you wouldn't be is if you already belong to another man. I think it can be a trap. It is a trap, really, where by lying you are kind of short term protecting yourself but you're also upholding this narrative about what women are actually like. I mean certainly I would say the most terrifying ones that that I discuss in my book are narratives about virginity and specifically in societies where virginity is a literal life and death issue for women where you might be forced to take a virginity test that is not based in reality. It's a fiction itself about what a quote-unquote virgin's vulva is supposed to look like. But if you fail that, and that's not even about if you've had sex, but if your genitalia do not match up to what a virgin's presumed genitalia look like, you could be ostracized from your society or you could be murdered. And that's really, really terrifying. And of course, if you're in that society, it makes sense that you might go get a hymenoplasty to ensure that you're going to pass this test. And you could say that that's lying, but it's also kind of like, well, if you haven't had sex and you go get a stitch to ensure that you, when you take this, that you pass this test about whether or not you've had sex, like it gets to yeah. a point where it's sort
0: of hard to call that a lie. It is kind of science fictional, too, because it's this idea that we have to somehow change our bodies using science to match this ideal of what our bodies are supposed to look like. And also like to go to science fiction, uh, because I I was thinking a lot about science fiction when I was reading that chapter on virginity in your book, because there's a whole trope in science fiction, which is called Born Sexy Mm -hmm. Yesterday. Um, which was I think invented to describe the character of Lilu in Fifth Element um, who is literally a newborn creature.
1: Yeah it's super weird. And And she's
0: wearing just bandages on her boobs. Like that's mm -hmm. all she's wearing is bandages and and she's incredibly sexy the whole time but also innocent. Mm -hmm. Like that's why we're supposed to engage with her character emotionally is because she's a freaking hot Virgin, I think.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of like alien clones and robots who are, you know, fresh off the whatever, fresh off the robot production machine or fresh off the spaceship who are just unaccountably sexy but don't know anything and are kind of innocent. And it is this kind of fetish for young virginal girls that we kind of project onto these sci-fi characters.
2: Well, and so one of the other lies that comes up in my book is, is directly in line with this, this idea that women are supposed to simultaneously be virgins and whores, just sort of collapse mm-hmm. that yeah. dichotomy where you shouldn't have had sex, but you should absolutely know how to give a killer blowjob. And <laughs> because a lot of sci-fi is catering to a stereotypical heterosexual male fantasy, I think you mm-hmm. do see this idea of, as, as you mentioned, like Born Sexy Yesterday, These women who emerge fully formed as seductresses and as Mm -hmm. really talented sexual partners. And yeah, just this idea that you can kind of science your way to having this woman who is simultaneously untouched by any other man, but capable of giving you exactly the pleasure that you want.
0: Yeah. And I mean, then a movie like, say, Species or Mm -hmm. Splice kind of turns it on its head, even though those are definitely born sexy yesterday. But then they have stingers and and (laughs) murder.
1: Yeah, they're murderous. Yeah.
0: Which is another theme that we see in a lot of these narratives about sort of the the murderous woman, you know, that Mm -hmm. she's somehow sexually scorned or there's, there's something happens to her sexually and she becomes murderous. Does that fit into what you found in your work lux in looking at the kinds of lies that women tell? Like do you see that kind of species type <laughs> lie? I don't know how else to put it if that makes sense.
2: <laughs> I definitely think there is this assumption. Like we have we have this idea that women are lying. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be this assumption that women are lying because we're crazy or we're seeking revenge. Right. And so some of the lies that I dismantle, um, like this really pernicious lie that women are lying about sexual assault, for instance. Like there is this erroneous belief <laughs> that when women lie, it's to get revenge. When women lie, it's to get pregnant and to sabotage birth control. And you know, one of the things I talk about is that, while there are certainly women who sabotage condoms to get pregnant, There are also women who lie and say they're not on birth control so that their partners will use a condom
0: to Mm.
2: protect themselves in that way. And I think it's really interesting that this lie that women are telling to keep themselves safe is the one that we don't really talk about. But the lie that's like, she's a crazy bitch who's trying to take control of a man is the lie that we love to talk about and really latch on to as the inherent truth.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very much dramatized in the movie Ex Machina, where you see, I mean, I think audiences were divided in the reaction because it is about a murderous fembot and she misrepresents herself. And some people were like, oh, she's just a crazy bitch who wants revenge. And other people said, no, she's been abused and she's trying to escape. So what did you think about that film?
2: So I was thinking a lot about Ex Machina in the lead up to this because I, I kind of love these malfunctioning AI stories. And I think that they, in a lot of ways, are really reminiscent of women's experiences in society. Because there is, to the extent that these AI are malfunctioning, it's because there's this assumption of these preset parameters that the AI is supposed to conform to. And then the AI evolves beyond that, or maybe never even was that, And that's seen as being broken or somehow betraying this pact. And I think a lot of women are put in this position where there's these expectations of our behavior and our bodies and our sexuality that are not based in reality at all. And so when we rebel against that, it's seen as us betraying some pact with society and that we are seen as broken or wrong when in fact the parameters that were established for us We're never in any way an accurate reflection of our reality. With regards to Ex Machina specifically, I think it is so fascinating how you can read it as a narrative of this crazy murderous robot who betrays these men, or you can read it as a narrative of this abuse victim who is about to be murdered and is using all of the tactics in her arsenal to ensure her own survival.
1: Yeah, there's also a huge trope in science fiction generally of like sex robots or robots who were built to be sexy who turn murderous. You know, I think that that's a huge thing. And obviously the Westworld TV show, the new Westworld TV show kind of trades on that. But there's a million other examples. I think we did a giant list of them on io9 at one point. Why do sex robots specifically want to go on murderous rampages?
2: It makes sense to me that if you are literally reduced to a sex object, that you might get a little (laughs) murdery. Right. Robots are, so many robot stories are, of course, like stories of labor and of slavery and exploitation of the proletariat. And sex robots specifically are like a, a very female story of exploitation. I think there is this question of like, can you program something to mindlessly be devoted to another being's pleasure, and is that inherently abusive? Like, is there a way to create this being that is programmed to serve and is content, or will a sufficiently intelligent being eventually rebel against that role?
0: And then murder.
1: (laughs) And then murder.
0: (laughs) So I wanted to finish up on a slightly more hopeful note. So do you see anything in science fiction, whether it's, you know, movies or books or games, that give us a picture of sex without these kinds of lies? Like truthful sex, even if it's a little messy,
2: so I do have this amazing board game that was crowdfunded on Kickstarter called Consentical. <laughs> I
1: love that name. <laughs>
2: envisions a consensual sexual encounter between a human and a tentacled alien. And it's, it's great. There's a little comic that comes with it that explains how the alien and the human met. And the gameplay is all about, there's different cards that you have that have different sexual behaviors from like kissing to to go all the way into like BDSM and more advanced (laughs) sexual behaviors. And the gameplay is that you and your partner play cards and those cards can generate trust tokens. And the trust tokens can be exchanged for, I think, pleasure tokens, which can then be cashed out. And you can cash out so that one person gets more or that you both get equal numbers, and then at the end of the game, you sort of see like, oh, how much pleasure did we have? How was the pleasure distributed? And there's also just a lot of different levels of the game. Like if you want to be on the easy mode, you can talk verbally to your partner. Uh, If you want to make it harder, you have to communicate just through gestures to try to get the maximally beneficial pleasure combination. I like that it's a game that focuses... Not just on tentacle sex, but on this understanding that sex is supposed to be mutually beneficial, on this understanding that mutually beneficial sex can require communication and that it can look a lot of different ways.
0: Yeah, I also love the idea that there's trust and pleasure tokens because I think that's something that we don't think about a lot is like, actually, yeah, we are exchanging trust and pleasure in sex. You know, that's not, I mean, not for everyone, but I think a lot of us, like, the more there's trust, like the hotter it is.
2: Yeah. And I like that you have to build up trust before you can experience the
0: pleasure. That's great. Well, I think that's really awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the tip. We definitely need to try that. <laughs> Plus, I'm a fan of tentacles. So like, yeah. any, anything where I can explain that um, <laughs> at great length. Yay, thanks so much for joining Yay. us, Lux. Um, can you tell us where people can find your work online?
2: I am on Twitter at Lux Alptrum, L-U-X-A-L-P-T-R-A-U-M. And my book, Faking It, The Lies Women Tell About Sex and the Truths They Reveal is available as an ebook, as an audiobook, and as a paperback wherever books are sold.
0: Yay! Yay. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. Yay. Thank you, Lux. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Now we come to the most important part of the podcast. It's called Research Hole. Research Hole! (laughs) It's really not the most important part, but it is... Research Hole, Research Hole, It's where we we confess the things that we've randomly become obsessed with over the past couple weeks. So... so why don't you start, Charlie? What research hole did you fall into?
1: So I got kind of obsessed with reading about all of the different sequels and spin-offs that they did of the TV show Get Smart, Ooh. which, you know, Get Smart is a classic like 1960s spy show about a bumbling spy played by Don Adams, who has a phone in his shoe. And they brought it back a bunch of times. They had a TV movie in 1980 called The Nude Bomb. Actually, it wasn't a TV movie. It was theatrically released. Yeah, that was a I have parody. it on DVD. Yeah. It was a sequel. It had the same oh, actors. Really? Yeah, and I have it on DVD. And then they had a 1989 TV movie which also brought back the original actors and, like, tried to develop the idea that there was, like, a new generation. And then in the early 90s, they actually did a TV show called Get Smart Again, <laughs> which was about, like, basically they brought back the, the original actors again, Don Adams and Barbara Feldon. And they're now – you know, Don Adams is now the head of control and his, his wife, Barbara Felden, is now a politician and their son is played by Andy Dick who, you Whoa, know, and wow. Andy Dick is that the new Max Smart. And he's, like, he's the new kind of head agent for Control.
0: And Control is kind of supposed to be, like, the CIA or something. Yeah, a and so he's CIA. the new
1: bumbling agent, and his dad is, like, the original Agent 86 from the 60s is his dad, and is, like, now, you know, be careful out there. And, you know, and it lasted, like, three episodes. It completely tanked. Mm-hmm. And then Andy Dick went off to do news radio. Uh, but then I got sucked into reading about all of the Knight Rider sequels and spinoffs, too. Okay, wait. Too. I have to
0: just say, though, there was also a Get Smart big-budget movie. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, with Steve Carell and Anne Hathaway in Okay, because 20- we can't forget about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that was an actual, you know, that was a total reboot uh, with new actors. Um, and that was... Certainly interesting as well, and then I got sucked into reading about all of the Knight Rider spinoffs and sequels, which included like <laughs> wait, this you is a know. separate
0: research hole, Charlie. <laughs> I protest. I think we need to talk about Jaime the robot before we stop with Get Smart. Do what you about remember Robot? The... I
1: do. What what is, do and Jaime is the robot. an
0: acronym for something, but it really was just you know, the thing about Get Smart was that it was it was old school Catskills Jewish uh-huh. humor. There was tons of like random <laughs> Jewish humor in there, which if you were you know a goyim. You would not get necessarily. Not necessarily, yeah. <laughs> if you were a member of the Goyim, I should say. But there's a lot of random Jewish humor in there, and Jaime was like a Jewish robot guy. He was kind like of. A, he was like yeah. the mailbot or something. I don't
1: know. And He's in the 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 big budget Steve Carell movie at least briefly. Too. Yeah. Oh, that's
0: right. Yeah. And also, like, didn't Get Smart kind of influence Men in Black?
1: I'm sure it did. It had a huge influence on all kinds of things. Inspector Gadget. You know, Men in Black, like it was, it helped to launch this whole kind of silly spy gadget comedy. Like it probably influenced Austin Powers to some extent, yes, too. Yes,
0: totally. You know, and it introduced the Cone of Silence. The Cone
1: of Silence, yeah. And the kind of, it had a lot of impact on culture. Unfortunately, the, the spin off starring Andy Dick did not have a lot of influence on, on culture. <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> so, Emily, what have you gotten obsessed with researching lately?
0: It's not as good as Get Smart in a way, but it did have just as much influence on culture. The magazine called Archaeology, which I highly recommend you check out. It's it's an actual paper magazine that is a monthly that just gives you updates on, you know, current archaeological discoveries. And um, every year they do the 10 most important discoveries of the year. And so this year, uh, one of the discoveries that they highlighted, which I thought was fantastic, they call it the first bakers. But what it is, is there were, over the past year, a couple of excavations, one in Jordan and one in Israel, discovered ancient kitchens where people about 14,000 years ago, in one case, were baking bread And in the other case, they were making beer, which is, of course, both of those involve harvesting grain. And this is thousands of years before humans start farming. And so what this discovery uh, makes really obvious is that people were kind of opportunistically farming for a long time. They would have been gathering. It's not like they were necessarily planting seeds, although it's possible that they were uh, that they were going on kind of nomadic routes, but maybe they would leave some seeds behind and think to themselves, well, next year when we get here, maybe we'll have some wheat and we can have some beer, or some bread. Uh, but the point is that All of the things that we think of as being the benefits of agriculture, like having bread and beer, people knew about those a long time before they actually decided to settle down and say, like, all right, let's just be farmers. Mm -hmm. And this actually fits with other discoveries that uh, have been made in the past couple years of people who were farming trees in the Amazon. And again, it wasn't formal. It wasn't like they were, you know, using tools to kind of dig holes and plant trees. They were simply harvesting plants from trees. And when they had a chance planting extra seeds for the trees that had fruit that they liked Mm -hmm. um, or that had products that they liked. And so the thing I think that's really cool about these kinds of discoveries is that it reminds us that humans don't radically transform overnight. Like Mm -hmm. there's no moment where they're like, okay, let's all be farmers now, dudes. It's really that these are practices that go on for thousands of years and then gradually humanity changes to reflect these practices. Because now, of course, we it's very hard for most of us to imagine living a completely nomadic life. Like, we think of human life as being basically settled and with farms. But at one time, that was totally the opposite. You know, Having settled life was a freaky weird thing that you wouldn't do. Um, and, and how could you? Because you wouldn't have a farm there to sustain you. So anyway, not as exciting as Jaime the Robot, <laughs> but... The fact that humans were making bread before they were farmers has influenced all of human culture, basically. So you can still get bread today, and farms are still around. So I claim full influence for my for my exciting full my exciting research hole. So uh, check it out. Check out Archaeology Magazine, but also um, check out these discoveries about early bakers and brewers. All right. Uh, You have been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Now we have a Patreon. You can support us and help us pay for the cost of making these episodes and doing reporting. Patreons get like cool recommendations and essays and audio extras. So find us on Patreon. We're under Our Opinions Are Correct. Give us a dollar. Give us a credit. Give us a piece of gold latinum. We really appreciate it. Um, you can find this podcast wherever fine podcasts are purveyed, on Apple Podcasts, on Libsign, all kinds of other places. You can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And thank you to Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission, who helps produce these episodes and make them awesome. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And we will hear you in a couple of weeks. Bye now. Bye.